Just a trigger warning for this episode, we discuss issues around suicide. So if you'd prefer not to listen, please press pause now. Welcome back to Talking Points, the podcast that shines a light on life in the performing arts. I'm your host, Claudia Lawson. Today, we again head stateside, this time to the east coast of the USA, to Boston, where I'm speaking with Boston Ballet's legendary principal dancer, John Lamb. John has the most incredible story. His Vietnamese parents were refugees who settled in the USA, and John together with his brother and sister, grew up in relative poverty in California. Traditional family values meant education was key in John's family, but he accidentally found dance as a young boy when his daycare offered it as an extra activity, meaning his parents could both work longer hours to support the family. And from there, the love affair began. John went on to train at Canada's National Ballet School and on graduation was offered a position at the Boston Ballet. In this wondrous and beautiful conversation, John talks about the joys of dance, about finding his sexuality, and the moment he came out to his parents. But we also talk about more, about navigating race and racism in ballet, about meeting his husband, becoming a dad to their two boys, and John's hopes that his parents will one day see him dance. Just quickly interrupting this episode to let you know that Season 3 of Talking Points is sponsored by Energetics. Energetics specialise in creating sustainable, world-class dancewear for the stars of tomorrow. Perform and feel your best at every stage of your dance journey in Energetics premium, high-performance fabrics. Try them out with a 20% discount for all Talking Points listeners using the code JOHN20 at the checkout. Shop their extensive range online at energetics.com.au or for our US listeners, it's energetics.com. T's and C's apply. John Lamb, welcome to Talking Points. We are just thrilled to have you here with us. And I know you're calling in at a really tricky time for children after a huge day in the studio. So um, we're grateful that your husband is uh, is taking on bath and dinner time <laughs> tonight. Yes. Well, I'm so thankful to be here. So thank you for having me. I really wanted to set the scene for our audience about your life. Okay. And so I'm hoping to sort of claw back the years and maybe even start with your parents' story about how they came to the U.S. and how they became based in California, where you were born. So my parents are from Vietnam. They are refugees here in America. They arrived here 38 years ago. That just shows my age. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, they arrived here 38 years ago um, knowing nothing, no English, no job, not really any contacts, but they ended up in... New York, actually. And they were told by other Vietnamese families that you must go to California because New York has snow. And, you know, Vietnam doesn't have snow. So they're like, what is that? And they're like, it's really cold and you don't want to be here um, during the wintertime. So they were like, we're going to go to California then. And they had my sister at the time. So she was like a yay 
seven-year-old, had my brother as well, and he was like an infant, and then had me. And I was the first child uh, to be born in America out of my entire family and extended family at the time. So it was a very interesting time. I, I mean, I can't imagine what it would have been like coming to a country, not knowing the culture, the how do you supposed to make it here? Um, but all they knew was freedom, you know, like that's the only thing they really knew was if you escaped from Vietnam, you'd be free from the war. So we lived in San Rafael, but in the projects of San Rafael called the Canal District. Can you explain that to our audience? Um, so it's like a, it would be considered a, a very poor area. And my parents had to work six different jobs to try to make ends meet for three kids. Mm -hmm. And so they had put me in this childcare center that took me after school, picked me up, brought me there, and then was able to do all the activities there. And then it was like extra care, right? Oh, I see. While your parents were working so many jobs, it was sort of like what we would yes. call maybe like extended daycare or long daycare. Yes. And then like when I was four, they were like, oh, um, this other program had arrived to the child care center and was like, hey, like we're offering free dance lessons. It will add about two more hours to your care. Mm -hmm. And it was all subsidized um, by the program. And so my parents were like, if you want to do it, that's great. That's two more hours. <laughs> and they fed me and they got my uniform and they would drive me to the blessed and drive me home afterwards. Wow. So it was like a basically win-win <laughs> situation for my mom and dad. And so I, oh my God. So this childcare center, it's like this huge warehouse that was so colorful in terms of just like art everywhere and there were like small little cubicles of different things so like if you wanted to just read books there was a cubicle to just books yeah. if you wanted to like just like create beads for like jewelry there would be like bead making then you'd be like there would be like watercolor then there would be like fabric making like all these crazy things at the time like i was like this is normal <laughs> like this is like a normal childcare center where it was fully immersive in the arts which i just loved like i think just naturally just loved this this space mm -hmm. and at the time they didn't really understand what dance was so they were just like oh it's just like an after school program that he's like in a room with other people and they're dancing. Oh, so like that's literally like kind of like their understanding of what dance was. They didn't have any <clears throat> idea what dance would be or what it was in America or how it was perceived in America. I, I went into it quitting after one day because I thought there was other boys. And that weekend, the program was like, listen, like, why don't you come to see a show at San Francisco Ballet and uh, make a decision there? So they took me to my first ballet show at San Francisco Ballet. And I don't really remember the ballet, but I want to say it was Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> and there's this scene of music that's just so powerful. And I just remember the music. Mm -hmm. I, there was three things. <laughs> <laughs> it, this funny. sounds like the most amazing. I mean, I don't think this kind of daycare <laughs> even exists today, like immersive in art, taking children to like professional ballet companies to see performances. I mean, they, they were ahead of their time. <laughs> Yeah, it was crazy. Like, I don't, like, when I think about it, I'm like, I wish I had that for my kids now. Because <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I don't have that. Like, there's nothing that exists that way, you know? Yes. But they took me to my ballet class, and I remember the music. I remember the men in tights. I mm -hmm. think it was, you know, I think at that young age, I kind of was also 
figuring out my sexuality. Mm-hmm. I was a very shy child. I didn't talk much, but I knew that I could express through movement and through dressing up. Yes. So went to the show. And then after that, that's kind of like just when I realized, oh, I really want to do this. And that's that basically triggered my love for for dance. But to backtrack, to keep going back to my parents yeah, yeah. <laughs> in this childcare center, as I grew up and I continued to go through this childcare center, I decided to like create like little plays and shows. And what was so amazing, so I would ask my parents and say like, you know, I'm going to be doing this like show. I don't know what that means, but like, I think you should come because like they told me that all their parents are going to come. I'm like, oh no, we're too busy. We're not going to, we're not going to be able to make it. I'm like, okay, cool. That's fine. Okay. So my parents didn't come and I think I was like seven or eight years old and I decided to choreograph a ballet that I was Cinderella and these other kids that were my age were these other characters that I were telling I was telling them what to do and just saying like okay so you're the butler you're the prince and like you are the witch and I'm the princess and blah blah and we would just make up things like I would get like scarves and put them around my head to make them as like my hair and like dresses and it was such a like for me it was very free but in hindsight as like a father and a parent now looking back I think like wow this could have gone really bad. Like one way it's like this childcare center just allowed me to immerse myself in exploring mm. like my creativity. Right. Yes. The other side, like mother, maybe other parents would have been like, Oh my God, like you're allowing a boy dress up as a girl. And like, how dare you? The childcare center director, I love her. And I still keep in touch with her till this day. Mm. And she's such a sweetheart and she's such a um, believer in allowing people to experience what they feel and their creativity and whatever that is and and not to feel judged and not to feel belittled and not to like this is so beyond their times like this was back in the 80s yes well I was just about to say that and so in terms of your parents visibility of this and I might be totally being presumptuous here but I imagine that as migrants to a new country, that gender fluidity and being able to express yourself so freely was possibly not hugely part of Vietnamese culture that they had known to date. Absolutely. Was that difficult for you in school or at home or you were just able to have that expression because there was not so much visibility? I think it's two things. You know, I grew up in a very strict Vietnamese cultured family, which was very closed minded to liberal acts, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. So when I came home, it was not art filled. It was not like there was no art in our family. There was no movement in our family in terms of like promoting that. Right. Mm -hmm. And going to school was very tough. I mean, I can't tell you how many times that I sat (laughs) for lunch by myself because I would have no friends because I would be that child who dances like you know I was Mm -hmm. that I was made fun of by other boys and girls and and kind of being like left out on things just because I didn't fit in the quote-unquote normal and that was tough you know dealing with that as a five-year-old six-year-old seven-year-old and not really kind of have the, the the support from your parents because they didn't really understand because it was just like what's the problem you're just dancing right and I'm like yeah but like they would make fun of me dancing and so they just didn't understand that so they didn't invest in figuring out like what was wrong they were just like just don't be a bad child 
Like, just go to school and don't cause any issues. Like, that's basically what we were told as first-generation Vietnamese kids. But I think because of those two aspects from my family life and from my school, that when I arrived in this childcare center, it was like an oasis, basically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because childcare center introduced me to dance, and then dance took over. So dance then became that after-school program that kept me out of trouble. And so it just kind of like married together for a while until things got really serious when I was around, you know, 13, 14 is when I more or less made a decision to leave home to go to Canada. And that was like a big no, no. Was it really? I mean, I really <laughs> want to ask you about that. For my family, that. for my culture. Like that was like, oh my God, like it was like a big ordeal when that really but I'm sorry I I don't I hope I didn't go totally off subject but that's kind of like oh no it's it's so fascinating to listen to because I imagine that your parents at the same time are trying to assimilate into a new country so they've got their own acceptance issues happening and then to see their son you know be immersed in a world that they're not familiar with and so I wanted to Mm -hmm. ask how then that progressed from a after-school interest that your parents maybe we're not fully aware of to then becoming accepted into Canada's national dance school. I mean, it's, it's a huge jump. And so how did that happen within your family and within, you know, yourself to make that decision? Well, you know, it's, um, I believe that it was luck or a mixture of luck and a mixture of, of destiny, I suppose, even to this day, my family doesn't really truly grasp the understanding of the impact that I've done as really? as a principal, like as where I am now in my career and what I've done and what I've cultivated and what I've built. So, so there's that. That's the caveat. So it's hard to answer a question like that because if I were just to answer the question, maybe people from the outside would be like, oh my God, you had a horrible like <laughs> childhood. But I didn't. Like my childhood was so beautiful in a way that that I had such huge respect for my mother and father mm-hmm. and had such respect for my Vietnamese culture and heritage that I submitted to that as a child. So that meant, you know, there's a saying in our Vietnamese culture where you don't want to burden your family. You don't want to burden your elder. You always want to make them proud. And so by making them proud is getting good marks in school. And So is it a very academic focus? Is that what achievement is recognized from in Vietnamese culture, that academic pursuit? So the uh, arts- Oh, yes. Like when all, their idea of success is being a lawyer, a doctor, or some sort of director of something. But being a doctor and being a lawyer are the two number one things- <laughs> For a first gen be a child to be like, that's what you need to do. <laughs> like that's what you need to do to become successful and like be able to take care of your family. And so that was ingrained in us, like as children, that you know, oh, that's what you're destined to do and be to make your parents proud. And I was very clear with my parents that that's not what I want to do, and that dancing was my passion and that I really wanted to do it. And so as I gotten older. Um, my parents were told, you know, dancing is usually for girls. And, you know, and and they started to be educated in like the rumors, I guess, from other people of like what their perception and uh, of what dance was in America. Yeah. And so, you know, they kept telling me like, you know, maybe you shouldn't do dance because it's for girls. 
And I just kept telling my mom, no, like I really love doing it. And throughout my elementary to middle school years, what I had done also was that I wanted to present dance to my classmates, even the ones that would make fun of me. So my mm. grade teachers would let me dur- like do a presentation on like dance. <laughs> and I would just turn music on and like dance in these small little classrooms to express the way I love, what I love. And it kind of became a thing when I was in grade three, then grade four, then grade five, and then grade six. Wow. So my mom realized that what I was doing was good because all of these, like all of my, my teachers, like my homeroom teachers would just love me. Like they were just like, your kid is so talented. So that fed my parents saying mm. like, your child is doing well. Like he's doing, he's doing good. Like he's a good child by doing this. Oh, so I, I didn't see. have like a full stop of saying like, you cannot do this. Right. It became a full stop when I was introduced. So how I was introduced to National Ballet of Canada was how I was introduced for my first male teacher, which mm-hmm. this is a crazy story too. Brilliant. <laughs> but so I only had female teachers um, since I started when I was four. And then when I was around 13 was when I, when I was introduced to Miko Nisinen. Mm-hmm. He was my first male teacher, unbeknownst to me, would soon later be my artistic director <laughs> for the yeah. past 20 years at Boston Ballet. So Incredible. at 13, I had met him. He introduced me to like male dancing and just like doing more like competitive things that mm-hmm. male d- dancers would do. He left to go to Canada to Alberta. And then I stayed for two more years. And that's when I was introduced to this lady named Cynthia Lucas, who used to be a ballet mistress at National Ballet of Canada, the company. Oh, I she see. had come back to Marin and she took over my school and she looked at me and she was like, if you want to make it, you need to go to a pre-professional ballet school, either that be San Francisco Ballet or National Ballet of Canada. So the thing was, I, my mom wanted me to go to San Francisco Ballet, mm-hmm. but the issue there was that they didn't have academics. You have to find your own academics on oh, top of your I dance see. schedule. That was too, <laughs> like at that time for me as a 13 year old, I didn't know how to manage that because everything that I had done prior my mom was like, if you want to dance, you have to figure everything out. Like my mom and dad wouldn't do anything. Like I had to figure it all out. Like I had to figure out the logistics, like how to get to class. Like I had to like learn how to like ride the bus. I had to like figure out how to like get that like 50 cents to like pay for the bus to then go to San Francisco and like do a summer program. Like I had to figure that all out, which was very industrious of me, but that just comes from my parents. Like they're very industrious themselves. Mm -hmm. So they're like, we figured it out with no English coming to America. You need to figure this out. This is what you want to do. So I did. And so I got a full ride to go to the summer program, National Bio of Canada. And then from there, that's when they invited me for a full ride to stay for the whole school year, which would pay for dance and academics at the same time. They had their own academics under the same umbrella and airfare and uniform, all this stuff. So I came back to my parents that summer. And I said, listen, I got this incredible scholarship, mm-hmm. but it means that I'm going to leave home because it's a boarding school at age 14 (laughs) and I'll only come back for Christmas and like maybe sometime in March. My mom and dad was like, no, you're not going to go. And I'm like, why? Like, why, why? I've done everything. And it's like, as academics, that's like a check there. (laughs) I was like, I have to be able to get full ride check there. I was like, what is the problem? So of course I was very upset. And Mm -hmm. then I remember my mom coming up to my room and she told me her kind of story. She was arranged marriage 
And she didn't want to marry my father. She always wanted to be a school teacher. But back then, women were not allowed to do anything except for be wives and stay home and have children and, and be with their children. That was the culture and more or less still is in surrounding areas of Vietnam. So she had to make, she had to give up her love of teaching as being a, a teacher. And so the reason why she told me that, she said, so I'm going to let you go and dance because I don't want it to take away something that you love so much because wow. it would be repeating what her own mom did to her. Wow. And so I'm like, oh, wow. And then she's like, and the number one thing, the reason also why you're not supposed, the reason why my, your dad doesn't want you to go is because he doesn't want you to be gay. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to be gay. End of story. Wow. <laughs> Which I already knew at that time in my life that I was gay. But I was like, if that means that I'm going to have to lie to my parents to go, because I knew I had to leave home. Mm-hmm. I knew at that time there was just something about like in me or in my mind where I was like, this is the time where I have to leave home in order to see if I can make it. Mm-hmm. Like if I can make this into a profession. And I didn't really understand, you know, I think as a fortune, you, know, you don't really know what profession is, yeah. you know, or you do, do something for a living. All I knew is I love to dance. I was good at it. And mm-hmm. I got a scholarship and I was like, and I'm American. And usually they don't even take Americans. <laughs> they only take Canadians. So I was like, there's so much writing on this. I should do it. So they let me go. And I went for the three years and I came back every December you know, it was tough because I was a mama's boy. You know, it was really, really hard for me. And and I didn't have, my parents didn't have any money to give me. So everything was, I had to stay in the dorms. And there was a lot of things that I couldn't do, you know, when 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 kids got to go home during certain weekends and stuff. Like, it wasn't easy for me. Like, But I also cultivated lots of good relationships with other people that sustained friendships with me and learned a lot about myself as a young lad going into Toronto and also kind of like I think like for me that was like the time where I kind of really blossomed into who I am Mm -hmm. as a gay boy but I always came home and all my aunties and aunts my aunties and uncles would always ask me like where's your girlfriend like when are you gonna get married blah blah blah. (laughs) like you know it's the time where you this is what you need to do maybe we need to arrange marriage you and I'm like oh my gosh like (laughs) this can't happen. So I just kept telling my mom, I'm so busy. Like I I don't even have time for anything. So that just had to ride for three years. But were you able to come out to your parents eventually? I mean, obviously you are, you know, completely out now. You're married to a man with two beautiful children. So um, I assume they know now, but how did that happen? Okay. (laughs) So it was, it was, it was good and bad, I suppose. So um, when I met my future husband, his best friend had committed suicide. And that was my first time um, realizing what that was and how that affected um, such an array of the community that wanted to ask so many questions. And at that time, I was still very closeted. And I was like, huh. I was like, so if I were to like, hypothetically die, like my parents would find out that I was gay and wouldn't ever have the opportunity to ask me questions or like to be a part of my life or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So at that time, I was like, that's when I made the decision. I'm going to come out to my parents because I think it's only fair to give them the opportunity to be part of my life in the way that I can live authentically and openly. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was engaged to my future husband. Oh my goodness. So that summer, (laughs) 
so that summer I came home and I said, listen, I want to tell you something. I remember my parents were in the bedroom. I came into the bedroom and I was like, mom, like, and dad, I need to tell you something very serious. And they're like, okay, what's wrong? Are you dying? And I was like, no, I'm not dying. I was like, but I'm gay. And it was silent. <clears throat> it was silent. And I said, I'm gay and I'm engaged to a man that's 20 years older than me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because I cannot imagine. How is the atmosphere? <laughs> My dad was completely quiet. My mom initially was quiet. And then she said, we need to take you to the hospital. That was oh her God. first thing that she said after I said that and I said why do I need to go to the hospital they're like we need to make sure that everything works down there maybe that's why you're gay and I'm like no it has nothing to do with my anatomy like nothing to do with my own anatomy I'm like I just happen to be attracted to the same sex that happens to be the same anatomy as mine mm -hmm. you know they were upset of course and they were trying to blame dance for be making me gay and all this stuff and okay. it was hard and hurtful at the, the beginning but I was prepared for it mm -hmm. so I don't think that I was distraught from what they had said I allowed them to be upset and then I remember the next day my mom came up to me in the morning and she's like well I still love you and you know like as long as you're a good person like and if he's a good person like I, I just want you to be happy oh, and I was wow. like yes I'm, I'm happy and I hope you can meet him soon and she's like okay and then that evening my dad had to drive me to the airport and the whole ride I mean, this ride is usually like a 30-minute ride, so it's not that long. But the whole 30 minutes, my dad was silent, oh my totally quiet. And I was like, oh, no, this is like, this is the thing that happens <laughs> to gay guys from their parents when they're just like really quiet. It's really awkward. But before I left and left the car, I vividly remember him telling me, I still love you and will always still love you. And I'm still very proud of you. And wow. so he just gave me a hug and then he drove away. Didn't show any emotion or anything. And my father doesn't. Like I've only seen him cry once in my life. But he also does, he's a man of few words as well. Okay. So the fact that he said that just kind of gave me a, a good relief of that. Like, you know, he still loves me and he still, like he might not understand, mm -hmm. you know, me, but he still loves me as his child. So that for me was enough wow. to then move forward to like our wedding where, you know, we had to do a Vietnamese like tea wedding and they came, my, my family came, my, my grandma came, oh my goodness, which was amazing. John. And they got to meet my whole other side, like my whole life, basically mm. that was here cultivated here in Boston. And it was really beautiful to like really see the immersion of of my family that came from such a more or less narrow, closed-minded place mm. to a place where they were learning from me. And the funny thing is my dad, so he spoke at the wedding, which I did not expect he was going to. My wedding planner was like, um, your dad wants to speak. I was like, oh, let him speak. Like, he wants to speak, let the man speak. He never speaks. <laughs> <laughs> so he spoke in Vietnamese and then I translated to people. But he was basically saying, John, we, we named your middle name D, which is D-I. The meaning of D means to go. You're always on the go. You're always going somewhere. And he said, I knew when we had you that you would always be on the go. Wow. Like you would always be going somewhere, doing something. And you've made us learn 
to be open and we just want you to be a, a good human being, a good person. Wow. So that was, that brought down the whole entire like, wedding down, <laughs> not down, but like everybody was crying because like, it was just a very special moment in time because it's like cultures um, colliding mm-hmm. um, and also seeing their, their child be immersed in a culture that they don't understand. So I can imagine how scary it is for them to have their child grow up in a, another state and be gay get married and and mind you the man that i'm married to is italian french not even vietnamese so it's like another culture so it's just like a very very interesting um perspective that i have empathy for for my parents but they still you know to this day they still haven't seen me dance professionally on stage and i'm hitting my 20th year here at boston ballet and so wow. it's tough because a lot of people will be like, oh my gosh, like that's crazy. <laughs> so hang on, your parents have never seen you dance professionally. They've never come to the theater. No, like they don't know what a real, like they've come to see me when I was a child at like little recitals in California, but those were small little like gymnasium yeah. recitals. Like they've actually never been to a real legit like opera house. So I keep telling them, I was like, you know that I work and I like dance in like a gorgeous opera house stage right and they're like yeah I'm like okay (laughs) wow have you seen the film um Mao's Last Dancer with Lee Shring Singh yes I have yes it's very there's a lot of similarities that I would say that really um tugs my heart and and tugs the cultural background on how Mm. I'm careful to say that Asian uh, different ethnicities within the Asian community are similar. I do think they are similar, but maybe some people might feel like they're not. Mm. But I do think that there are very much a lot of similarities in that film Mm. on how, you know, men are viewed in Asia um, I mean, dance is viewed in Vietnam, particularly in Vietnam. See, this is what's the, also the difficult thing, is that when people think of Asian dancer, like in general for like the dance world, like either you have like a Korean dancer or a Japanese dancer. And those two countries are very much want their children to be dancers. Like they have amazing schools that promote dance and dance is considered like a coveted thing in Korea and Japan. But in China or like in Vietnam, I mean, let's specifically talk about Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Vietnam is, that's not part of a a social venture. That's like an extracurricular, like, oh, you're just like, you're just doing that just for fun. So, and it's, it's, I still feel like that's very much the same way in in the way of their minds. Um, There is a national company in Vietnam. And that was very interesting. There was a moment in time in my career where I was going to dance for the national company there. But I was frowned upon because that's the other thing that's so weird too, is that I am Vietnamese, but I was never, I'm not born there. So because I'm not born there, and even though I'm successful here in America, I'm not welcomed there to represent their culture. So it's tough because you're like, well, you can't win then because Mm -hmm. (laughs) I am Vietnamese American and I'm happy to represent Vietnamese people and I'm happy to represent American people. So I don't know. It's, 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 it's been a little weird in that sense. So I don't know. Yeah. It's like you're, you're sort of straddling two cultures and possibly one doesn't entirely ever understand the other. Yeah. And and that's okay. Like that's Mm. okay with me. I still feel very much respected in my community, 
on a surface level, not on a deep level. And that's okay. I, I just know that if I'm authentic and I'm able to offer my story to either empower others or to empower a child or someone that's seeking dance because you're dealing with cultural um, aspirations where they want to go and do something, but their their culture is like, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. Like you're mm-hmm. supposed to do this and this and this. Hopefully this ignites a passion for them that it is possible. It's just a matter of, of having an open mind. And I think I've always had that open mind kind of concept as a child since I was four, you know, <laughs> dressing up as a female, you know, doing all these crazy things and facing adversity and and still doing things that people like you're not supposed to do that mm-hmm. even within my own family and still were able to overcome that. Like it is possible because you have to be open. You have to be open to hear the criticism. You have to be open to move on from the criticism. You have to be open to be upset. You have to be open to feel the the success. Um, you have to be open to to learn. And I still am that. I still continue to learn and I'm still an open book. And and I think maybe that's why I still dancing <laughs> well I want to ask about that my career <laughs> I want to ask you are now you've been with Boston Ballet more than 20 years yeah. I mean what an incredible legacy and and as we've talked about what you represent you know both visually in your your heritage but also what you bring to the stage you we've talked now you're married with two beautiful children I mean how do you juggle a full-time career on the stage and touring with Boston Ballet and family oh life. <laughs> yeah, and school too. Don't let that, but I'm getting my master's. I'll be done in February. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so, and writing a memoir too. So let's, wow. let's just put it all in there. Um, my husband and I, I joke about it, but I really do think that I thrive when my plate is full. Mm-hmm. I love being busy. I love the chaos of it. Yes. And within the chaos, I'm able to kind of feel grounded in it, if that Mm -hmm. makes any sense. I don't know, maybe that stresses other people out, but it doesn't stress me. I'm so grateful and honored to to realize my 20th year here Mm -hmm. with Boston Ballet. You know, I, I know that many dancers may hit 20 years of professional dancing, but not 20 years with an organization. And I think that my commitment to Miko and to Boston Ballet has been that it has been my home and and it is my home, you know, regardless of, you know, the ups and downs, of course, it has never, ever been perfect. It has never been always highs. It has not always been, you know, there has been lows. I have been injured. I had to overcome injuries. I had to overcome um, adversity within my own organization. I had to overcome slight racism in my whole organization as an Asian male dancer. Yeah. I had to overcome stereotypes. So, you know, there are things that I had to face with the 20 years that I stayed here, but my commitment to the organization and to this art form has been with Boston Ballet. Mm. And Boston Ballet has also given me a platform to, to really explore all facets of what art means to me. I mean, I'm so lucky to have been immersed with so many different roles from like the most classical role of playing the prince in Sleeping Beauty to being Carabas in the Sleeping Beauty many years later. I mean, it goes from contemporary works, neoclassical works. I'm thankful for that. And I keep wanting to not 
celebrate it because I think, oh, you know, I just got to keep going, got to keep going, keep going. Mm -hmm. But I look back and all I think is how proud I am of that child who came from poverty, who came from adversity, who came from um, a, a family that didn't fully or still doesn't fully understand what they do, mm. that I stuck it through. Like, I'm proud of that child. I'm proud of that person. And then realized life was not over when I met my, first, my, my future husband and then had children and realized, wow, you can have you can have your passion, you can have a family, you can learn from your children and then continue and to continue that art and to continue the learning of what art means to me. And on top of that, you know, investing in myself in education, um, getting my bachelor's degree, graduating last year and going right dovetailing right into my master's and I'll be graduating in February and there's talks of getting my PhD. Oh, wow. I love to learn. And I love to look at different perspectives of things. I think that it's because I was never the typical pedigree to have made it to a profession like this. Mm. That makes any sense. You know, like I wasn't born into a family that had history of dance. I wasn't born into a family that knew the ropes of going into this industry. Mm. I had nothing. The only thing that was going for me was, was me my authentic self. And so that's why I'm always such a huge advocate of people finding who they are to then share that. Because I think that by doing that, we show that we are all human at the end. I mean, we we always hear this kind of saying where, you know, life is too short. And I think what really struck me the most as a young child was, it's a little morbid, I guess, because as a young child, you don't think about death, you think about life and Mm -hmm. about all these other things. But I always thought about how, you know, when you leave this world, what do you leave with? We don't leave with anything materialistic. What we leave with, if we still have it, is our memories, our cultivating of relationships with one another. And I have kept that. And and that is from my parents. And so that's why I am so respectful to my parents, because they taught me a life skill that sustains my life in all that I do because the memories that I cultivate with my children, with my colleagues at the ballet, through the audience that I dance for, the people who follow me, for people who I inspire, impact, who uh, the students that I teach, uh, the places that I guest, the people that I talk to, those memories are the ones that stay with you forever. I We went through a, such a like a the beginning of our conversation to this, and I'm like, wow! I absolutely love lot. it. It's absolutely a lot, and we are. I'm just so appreciative of everything you've shared. I think you are leading such an incredible life with such <laughs> grace and such courage. And you know, I hope there's a moment, and I'm seeing that image of that film that we mentioned, Mao's Last Dancer. You know, where his parents sit in the yes. auditorium and just their faces stream with tears. And so I hope yeah. there's a moment that you have with your parents before before you leave yeah. the stage. But um, I hope so too. I mean, I, I think it will happen when, like, you know, I have to stop dancing sometime soon. <laughs> Not soon, I ish, mm. but you know, I'm 38 and, you know, I can't dance forever. And and I've laid a lot of rocks ahead of me where I can figure out what I want to do. 
I guess the best scenario is that I have too many options <laughs> to, <laughs> exactly. to figure out. And that's the hardest thing because my number one thing is I love to dance. I love mm. to dance. I love how it makes me feel. And, and it brings me back to that, to that childlike place where, you know, where I was bullied or where I, my parents didn't understand me or, or if I was dealing with school issues that when I got to dance, it, it all went away. Mm. It was just me and the music and, and whatever I was dancing. It's a big, powerful thing, I guess. <laughs> John Lamb, thank you so much. We are just so honoured to have heard your story and um, for giving, you know, your time tonight. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. John continues to perform as a principal with the Boston Ballet, all while juggling life with his husband and their two young children. For Boston Ballet performance times and tickets, head to their website, bostonballet.org, or you can find them on Instagram at Boston Ballet. And to follow all of John's adventures, you can find him on Instagram at John D. Lamb. John and I recorded our conversation remotely, with John dialing in from Boston on the east coast of the USA. Talking Points is produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Awabakal peoples to whom we pay our greatest respects. Talking Points is produced by Fjord Review. Remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes as soon as they're released. And if you like us, please leave a five-star review. On the next episode of Talking Points, we've got a bonus episode. We're going to be once again chatting to the divine Dana Stevenson. I knew that this is what I needed now, this time with them and learning about them more than I could have when I was dancing and not missing it. I was ready now. I knew that this was actually the most rewarding work I could do. Your host and producer is me, Claudia Lawson, with additional production by Penelope Ford and Clint Topic. Sound production and editing is by Martin Peralta at Output Media. And for the latest in all things dance, head to fjordreview.com. If this episode has triggered any thoughts or feelings and you'd like to chat to someone, please contact Beyond Blue in Australia or for anywhere else in the world, please contact your local support group.